Hey guys, before we start, just a quick reminder, Powerhouse Politics is now on Spotify. Head over there, follow along, and tell your friends. Okay, let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, uh, of course, the story, the dominating story uh, is the Hurricane Harvey, now Tropical Storm Harvey, now uh, in seeing as much devastation as I think uh, as I think we have ever seen in the state of Texas. Yeah. Um, a catastrophe that is uh, potentially of, of, of Katrina uh, proportions uh, playing out. And President Trump, um, even before the storm is over, uh, is headed to Texas. Yeah, and I think a lot is made, and I think rightfully so, of this as a leadership opportunity, a big moment. We remember uh, some of the, the iconic imagery of presidents for good and for ill responding to storms. And it seems to me, John, that the White House got it from the start. They understood the importance of projecting that. They got out in front of uh, some of the announcements, making the quick trip down there. Uh, but, uh, of course, we're a long way away, and there are going to be questions about how you pay for it. There are going to be questions about the federal government's response. There are going to be questions about the attentiveness uh, to all of the, the needs of uh, tens of thousands, about hundreds of thousands of people in the Houston area. Uh, and a president who, for all his many skills in business, has never managed anything quite like this. Yeah, and, and I, there are many people on the president's team uh, who have uh, memories, very, very vivid memories of Hurricane Katrina and the disaster that was President Bush's response. Some were actually a part of the, uh, of the Bush administration when that went down. So they have been very keyed into this, that this uh, president needs to, needs to uh, project involvement and, uh, and caring about what is going on. But I've got to say, I think there's one lesson that maybe the president himself has not learned. If you remember, and I know you do, Rick, uh, the, uh, the the quote that that echoed through the ages for <laughs> President Bush was uh, was about his FEMA director, Mike Brown, saying, you're doing a heck of a job, Brownie. And I remember the, um, the press conference quite vividly uh, where he did that. Uh, he also reassured America that Trent Lott's house was going to be fine. Uh, cause remember Mississippi? Uh, was hit quite bad, and uh, Trent Lott's house incurred damage, and I'm sure America felt reassured that that uh, that the then Senate leader's house would be fine. But um, if you listen to President Trump in his joint press conference with the President of Finland talking about the federal response to this storm, he appropriately talked about all that was being done, uh, but he also sounded downright. Uh, upbeat about uh, about the way things are going in terms of the re- of the recovery effort, and frankly, it's way too soon to know how the recovery, the federal response, really is only just beginning. But I wanted to play our our, our senior executive producer Dave Ryan has put together a, uh, a a few clips of the president at that press conference uh, talking about the federal effort, the federal response. And I just wanted to, to, to play it. Texas is a unique place. It's a great, great state, great people. And I think you'll be up and running very, very quickly, really very quickly. So, um, uh, yeah, I think you're going to be in fantastic shape. We're working directly with Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who, by the way, is doing a fantastic job, and his entire staff, likewise, as well as with Governor John Bell Edwards, who's very much uh, involved in starting the process of Louisiana. Under the supervision of FEMA, 
Administrator Brock Long, there has been uh, a, a tremendous amount of work done. He has he has been so outstanding in so many ways. More than 8,500 federal workers are involved in the Texas effort alone. So uh, outstanding in so many ways. Now, let's hope he's right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, we are really just now seeing the uh, extent of the damage. Again, the storm is not over. Uh, the, the, the flooding has destroyed entire neighborhoods. Uh, there will be people that will never be able to go back to their homes, homes destroyed. Um, I, I think that uh, it's very dangerous for the President of the United States to be talking about uh, things coming back very, very quickly when, I mean, like I said, let's hope he's right. Up and running very, very quickly, really very quickly, and then you'll be in fantastic shape. Uh, Looking at the images, and again, we we hope that that's the case, but looking at the images in Texas, talking to people, I've got family and friends on the ground in Houston, it's hard to imagine them feeling like they're in fantastic shape anytime in the foreseeable future. There is no federal response that will be commensurate with that. And part of this is typical Trump bluster. He talked about how this is the biggest storm and experts are talking about how huge it is and the big response, and he seems to enjoy that part of it. But part of it is just the reality here. And what will be interesting to me, John, in in the coming days is not just the response to the storm, but the response that that he registers around politics. He's got an event in Missouri uh, tomorrow where he talks about his tax reform push. Congress will be back right after Labor Day with a lot on its plate. And we're going to talk to the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus about some of the issues that they're facing around spending and the debt and the debt ceiling. And does the president take a little bit of an edge off of the politics for the moment in an opportunity to try to heal the nation and oversee a federal response? Or do we go right back where we were? We saw last week, very dramatically, uh, two different Trumps in in successive days. Monday Trump versus Tuesday Trump were different people. You have another opportunity to see which Trump is on display now at a much more sober moment where all of those big fights that we've been talking about seem very, very small in the context of the suffering in Houston. And even on the, uh, the, the, all the battles before Congress, the one thing that would normally be kind of pro forma would be the the emergency funding that will be needed to deal with this disaster. But we, we remember vividly what happened with the fight over Sandy funding and Republicans, uh, the vast majority of the Republican uh, uh, caucus in the House, um, conference in the House, uh, opposed Sandy funding, actually voted against it. Uh, led many, by the Texas members, as a matter of fact. Uh, led by the members of Texas, who very helpfully, uh, Chris Christie has just called hypocrites. Sure. Uh, uh, and, and, and said that Chris Christie, being the bigger person, uh, supports, fully supports uh, funding for this disaster. Um, but, you know, I'm interested to talk to Mark Meadows, the the, uh, the chairman of the Freedom Caucus. He'll be joining us shortly because... Uh, although there was no Freedom Caucus back then, as you well know, uh, there uh, the precursor uh, Tea Party Caucus was around. The, uh, the 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 Tea Partiers, like Mark Meadows, opposed Sandy funding. Mark Meadows himself voted against it. Uh, they called it pork barrel spending and said that uh, you know many of them demanding that any funding be offset uh, with spending cuts elsewhere before you know before funding would be appropriated. So I think that's going to be an interesting uh, issue. Um, you know, one of the big ones was Mick Mulvaney. Yeah, that's right. He, He's now the president's budget director. He is adamantly opposed to Sandy funding. Where is he going to be on this? Yeah, and Speaker Ryan wanting offsets at, at the time as well. And I think, Sean, to the point about politics, it's notable that the president didn't shy away from politics at this moment. Uh, we remember 
Friday night uh, that the nation was braced for impact of the first major storm of the Trump presidency. And there came a news dump uh, that was epic for the ages. Uh, We had official notification about the transgender ban that the president had tweeted uh, several weeks earlier, and then the pardon of Joe Arpaio. Which came at, I think, roughly 8.02 p.m. Do I have that right, Eastern time? I I think that's about right. And (laughs) the first bans were hitting the, um, of Hurricane Harvey, were starting to hit the uh, the coast of Texas. You saw the pictures, and just as striking, the president asked about it in that news conference that you referenced, about the timing. This is what he had to say. In the middle of a hurricane, even though it was a Friday evening, I assumed the ratings would be far higher than they would be normally. You know, the hurricane was just starting. Uh, and I put it out that I had pardoned, uh, as we call, as we say, Sheriff Joe. He is loved in Arizona. I thought he was treated unbelievably unfairly. Oh, man. Um, can we play that again? <laughs> in the middle of a hurricane, even though it was a Friday evening, I assumed the ratings would be far higher than they would be normally. You know, the hurricane was just starting. Uh, and I put it out that I had pardoned, uh, as we call, as we say, Sheriff Joe. He is loved in Arizona. I thought he was treated unbelievably unfairly. The president was invoking television ratings. The ratings. And the reason why he was doing so, of course, because many people, I mean, maybe even, maybe even some people in this, in this, uh, in this studio uh, thought that, uh, that the announcement of the Arpaio uh, verdict coming on a Friday in August, a Friday evening in August, um, a Friday evening in August when an epic uh, hurricane was, <laughs> was just beginning to hit the state of Texas, that there was an effort to hide uh, that, to bury that news. And the president said, no, no, no. He was looking for maximum impact. He knew people would be watching because of the hurricane. So he wanted to make sure everybody knew that he pardoned Sheriff Joe. Dude, come on. Yeah, come on. And, and you know, obviously on the substance of this, it carries enormous symbolic value to his base, to Latinos. This was a man who was convicted of defying federal court orders about how he administered justice as the sheriff of Maricopa County, Arizona. Defying a court order to stop racial profiling. Correct. I mean, let's... let's <laughs> Let's Correct. catch he it out. Ca- he, a man who talked about his uh, his jail as a concentration camp. The original uh, birther. Come on. The original member of the birther movement actually sent a sheriff's deputy to Hawaii to investigate the the spurious, um, debunked, and ridiculous claim the president was not actually born there. And that's where that first alliance happened with President Trump. So the fact that he makes that his first pardon, uh, combine that with the timing. The and first the pardon. So of all the people in the United States, 300 plus million, yeah. of all of the subset of that uh, who have been uh, convicted of some federal crime, uh, this is the single most uh, worthy person uh, to receive uh, a pardon. And the reporting that came out afterward that the president had inquired about dropping the prosecution entirely, that it was Sessions started. It is actually the investigation started, I believe, under President Bush and extended for 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 all through the Obama years as well. They 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 went through with that. But he seemed very eager to pull the trigger on this pardon and, and, and prevent him from from serving any time in prison. Uh, it a is pardon condemned by Paul Ryan, by the, both Republican senators yeah. from Arizona. That's right. And 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 by Jeb Bush. And, and I guess none of those people were really big fans of No, uh, I think not. I think not. But, also, but, but short-circuiting the typical process going around the, the normal uh, way that you do things. He's got the power to do it. And no one no one is questioning that. He's got the power to issue a pardon. Uh, it doesn't take very much to do it. He can do it for any reason he wants. That's one of the powers vested in the presidency. But uh, the fact that he decided to do it at that moment, I think, is a, is a window into the mind of a man who continues to tend to that base and continues to, to, to fight with the spirit of those who brought him here and not thinking much beyond that. 
You know, one other thing before we before we get to our guest, because uh, there are so many stories that that have come rapid fire over the last uh, the last couple of weeks. Actually, Rick, over the last seven plus months. Uh, yeah. But uh, but you know, one one of the things that that came out of uh, Charlottesville, of course, was the uh, the the statement of, of Gary Cohn, the interview that he gave with the Financial Times. Uh, the this is the president's top financial top economic advisor. Uh, quite critical of the White House's and the president's response to what happened in Charlottesville. But one of the things that the president said that we haven't really heard him explain um, was what he meant when he said that there were very fine people on both sides in Charlottesville. Now, we know on one side there were neo-Nazis uh, chanting you know, horrible uh, slogans, anti-Semitic uh, slogans as they marched with their tiki torches. So... Um, I tried to get an answer on this at the at the the last White House briefing we had, which was on Friday. Take a listen. John, sorry, we're really tight on time, so I'm going to try to get to several of your colleagues. On on, on both sides, who were the very fine people that were protesting with the neo Nazis in Charlottesville? Sorry, Uh, who were the very fine people? John, we're super tight on time, so I'm going to try to cover as many. So they were super tight on time. Uh, That's fine, Uh, but I, I promise you that that question will continue to be asked until we can. Either get a you know an acknowledgement the president might have misspoke on that, or or an explanation of yeah. what he meant. And and you're right to press on it, and and I'd like to see others in the briefing room press on it as well. It's it is a worthy question, it is a valid question, and it's a question that cuts to the heart of what President Trump means as president. Uh, that moment in Charlottesville, I don't think that this White House has begun to reckon with the damage that they did uh, politically to themselves, to his credibility, his ability to unify. The president has not apologized in any way for those comments. Uh, and no, he seen, said they were perfect. That's right. And you've seen, I, I, I've never seen quite the response from members of the cabinet. In, in rapid fire in the last couple of days, Rex Tillerson pointedly saying that the president speaks for himself, not necessarily the spirit of the nation. And Jim Mattis talking to troops in Afghanistan, talking about how the need to persevere over this time of division, those are two heavy hitters to come out and put some serious distance between themselves and the president. And those are the divisions that are still there, regardless of any storm, regardless of the budget fights or any of the, the news of the political day. He showed himself to be someone that uh, that, that others have felt the need to, to put, uh, put a good degree of distance uh, between. And that, that, to me, was a major moment in this presidency among all the noise. And I don't think that there's an understanding yet of, of what the consequences are. That was an extraordinary moment with Rex Tillerson in the interview with Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday that you're referring to, where Tillerson was saying the State Department represents the values of the American people, and then when he was pressed about President Trump, said the president speaks for himself. So in other words, the State Department speaks for the American people, the president speaks for himself. I noticed something yesterday on the president's schedule. It was uh, a lunch with the vice president. He does this every week. That's nothing unusual about that. But it was a lunch with the vice president and with Rex Tillerson. Now, that's happened before, not as often, but 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 the, the three of them had had, have had lunch before. But I would love to know, and I've tried to get a sense of what happened in that in that lunch. I don't, don't, we can only speculate as of this point. But in asking senior White House staff yesterday about it, um, one senior official uh, told me that, um, you know, that, look, that's fine. They get they have lunch and this happens from time to time. But that there is uh, a sense that, that, that 
that there is a real breakdown between the Secretary of State and the White House. They have been at loggerheads on several issues, the Iran nuclear deal, the response to Venezuela, uh, the uh, how to respond uh, to, uh, to, to Qatar. Um, th- there have been major differences on personnel, frustration that has been expressed openly. Uh, and what this official told me was this cannot continue. So does that mean that Tillerson gets back in line uh, or does it mean that he is ultimately replaced? And we've seen speculation that there could be a change out there. Uh, in, in, in Axios, uh, uh, Jonathan Swan uh, talking about the possibility that uh, Nikki Haley could come down to the State Department. Uh, you know, I, I, who knows? That's, that's speculation. But, I, but that is a story, I think, to watch. Uh, and, that, and that moment with, with Wallace was, I thought, a very revealing moment. Yeah, Rex Tillerson, someone to watch in this cabinet because of the credentials he brought beforehand. He's got the respect of President Trump. Uh, Trump uh, thinks highly of him and his successful business career. But he's someone that's been frustrated with the with the White House, uh, with the political interference that he's seen along the way, and someone who, frankly, can pack up his bags and leave if he chooses to. He's not someone who owes any particular uh, loyalties or uh, any necessity to his existence around maintaining that job. And he's able to speak his mind maybe more than most. All right, Rick, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, Mark Meadows, Republican congressman from North Carolina and the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. Hey there, it's Mara Schiavocampo from Good Morning America. Like so many people, I've struggled to find that perfect balance between health and happiness. Name a diet, I've probably tried it. Crazy workout plan, yep, I've done that too. But I learned it was my approach that was actually weighing me down. After losing 90 pounds, I discovered it's not just about reaching a healthy weight. It's about finding peace and freedom. I have a podcast called Motivated, focused on all things health and wellness. Join the conversation. Search Motivated on Apple Podcasts and subscribe today. Hey, it's Rebecca Jarvis, and I wanted to tell you about my podcast, No Limits. We bring you a new guest with a new story every Tuesday. We're talking to trailblazing women across a variety of industries to hear about how they've built success and carved a unique path. And you can find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Just search No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis and subscribe today. All right, and joining us now, Congressman Mark Meadows, the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus and uh, representative from the state of North Carolina. Thank you for joining us, Congressman. Well, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much uh, for taking the time. Look forward to discussing some important issues with you. Yeah, and I want to start with uh, the recovery efforts uh, now underway, beginning of what looks like it's going to be a long, uh, costly, uh, brutally difficult uh, recovery from Hurricane Harvey. Um, as I recall, when the issue of emergency funding came up after uh, Superstorm Sandy, you voted against uh, the, the emergency spending, and, and, and many of the House conservatives said that if they were going to fund or provide funding to, to deal with storm recovery that needed to be offset by spending cuts elsewhere. Is that your position uh, regarding this as well? 
Well, that wasn't my position then and certainly not my position now. We've, we've kind of uh, looked at, at these emergency requests is indeed emergency requests. And, you know, our heart goes out to the people in, in Texas as, as they did to the heart. You know, our heart went out to the people in New York. The real problem comes in is that uh, it's almost like no disaster, no good deed uh, goes unpunished when we have disaster relief a lot of times it becomes a vehicle for special spending and actually in the sandy bill we were actually funding uh, fisheries in alaska and uh, i didn't see anything that had anything to do with hurricane uh, or superstorm sandy uh, as it related to fisheries in alaska so as long as we keep the emergency relief really uh to support the people in need, uh, whether they be in New York or Texas, uh, I think you'll find plenty of conservative support, certainly my support. Okay, so what about the issue of a of a government shutdown? Of course, the president himself in, in invoked this idea in Arizona, saying that if there isn't money uh, for the wall, that that, that 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 he'd be willing to to uh, to push to a government shutdown to to get that funding. Uh, now that we have this this disaster unfolding, it seems to be a, a perilous time to be talking about a, a, a government shutdown. Where do you stand on that? Well, I don't know that anybody's advocating for a government shutdown. Obviously, I'm very aware of, of the uh, priorities that the president's put forth in terms of uh, uh, the border security and the wall, and and uh, I certainly support that. Yet at the same time, I think more headlines were made of a shutdown happening in September than were actually ever a reality. And so, and and, and so, let me explain why that is. Uh, uh, for me, as the head of the Freedom Caucus, we actually suggested that we should fund the government back in July, or we shouldn't leave for our August recess. That was one of our official positions. We needed to go ahead and deal with the debt ceiling, go ahead and deal with the funding, and at that particular time, uh, continue to work on repeal and replacement of Obamacare, uh, as well as having tax reform uh, parameters set in place. Obviously, that didn't get done, uh, but we're calling on our leadership to go ahead and, and pass a funding bill the first week back. Uh, so next week in September, uh, we we are encouraging our leadership to go ahead and put a bill on the House floor. Let us vote for that, even if we have to add you know uh, ten or twenty billion dollars in terms of supplemental emergency funding uh, for what we anticipate to be a need because we won't know the full amount of the damage um, you know for many weeks and months to come. But but let me let but me let me what, let me be specific here though. Will you support? a funding bill that does not include money uh, to build the wall? Well, I've, uh, so two, two answers. One, I've already supported a funding bill that does include money for the wall, but specifically a CR that happens next week that doesn't have uh, wall funding in it, I think would still get the support of, of me and other conservatives uh, until as we work through the process of the normal appropriations process. But the bill that we've already, you know, passed before we left in July actually had $1.6 billion in it for border wall funding. And, and, and the question becomes for, for Democrats is, uh, is there no special project? Is there no amount of money that they want in, uh, you know, some other priority for them that they would support uh, money for building a wall, or is is it that 
political that they're saying that there's no way they would ever give money for a wall, regardless of of any offsetting financial resources that would go to, you know, maybe children in need or or some other uh, issue that is near and dear to many of us. I can't imagine the Democrats not negotiating in good faith. And that's what we really do need to do is sit down and have a discussion uh, with all of those things. But to be clear, you're talking about a bill that does not fund the wall in this fiscal year. You're saying get this through clean and then start negotiations, because that seems like a different position than the White House position right now. Well, I don't know that it's a different position than the White House. I mean, the the priority is there for the White House to get wall funding. And whether it is on the normal appropriations process, which I think is where the White House has always been, is saying, as we work through the 12 appropriations bills, we want to make sure that there's funding in there for border security, whether it be a wall, whether it be fencing, whether it be, you know, solar panels. What, you know, we've, we've heard a number of different narratives on what it may or may not look like. But there are two different funding vehicles. One is the normal appropriations process of which we passed in the House that included funding for the wall uh, that still has to go to the Senate. Or there is this other vehicle, a, a continuing resolution, and uh, most of the conservatives that I talk to are willing to uh, continue to do a uh, and vote for a continuing resolution uh, that just basically would not have wall funding in it. It would continue the current stream of money that uh, keeps the government operational while we work through and negotiate on the appropriations bill. So the answer is is yes. Uh, I don't want to speak for the entire Freedom Caucus. We haven't uh, taken a formal position on that. But generally speaking, uh, and talking to a number of my members, uh, if there, there was a vote for a uh, continuing resolution next week that did not include uh, border wall funding, uh, the, the majority of those members would be supportive of that. So that would suggest that, it, that it, the shutdown is is not in, in order. Let's turn to the debt ceiling. Although, con- although it could be by the end of the by the time that that continuing resolution is over. So the the, the, the overall spending. So so the shutdown fight basically gets pushed off to later. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, 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 does the yeah, CR? I, I, w- I would agree with that. If there's going to be a shutdown fight, I mean, I would see that that would happen. Uh, you know, in December or January, if there's going to be a shutdown fight, but not in September and certainly not in uh, along with uh, the disaster that we're facing in uh, in Texas. And would, and would you encourage the president to veto a bill at that point uh, that did not include funding for the wall? Well, you know, and, and, and here it's not a matter of me encouraging the president or not encouraging the president. The president can't well, support him in vetoing. And, yeah. and I would support him in in any manner that he wants to address the border wall, be glad to support him. I'm on record as supporting him, but, but I believe we need to secure our southern border. It's not just from an immigration standpoint. It's from a national security standpoint. And uh, you can't have a porous southern border and continue to uh, to enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy uh, just by allowing it to to be as porous as it is. So let's talk debt ceiling, Congressman. Uh, the other big challenge that's facing uh, you when you get back to town in Washington. Uh, the, the the administration is on record saying they want a clean debt ceiling. Secretary Mnuchin last week said 100 percent certainty uh, the debt ceiling will be raised. The, the statutory uh, limits on debt will be will be raised. What is your position on that now? Could you support a clean debt ceiling under the same principle you're talking about of just moving this off and, and fighting another day? 
No, I mean, I think the debt ceiling, is it's like saying that a florist is surprised by Valentine's Day. We've known the debt ceiling is coming. Florists are not surprised by uh, any holiday that is coming up. They, they make plans. They anticipate what's coming. The federal government should anticipate and, and have plans. We've known the debt ceiling was coming up. Uh, a clean debt ceiling is not something that I support. We've got a fiscal crisis on our hands. We've got, you know, we've got out of control spending, and yet we continue to raise the debt ceiling over and over again uh, without any um, thought of how it's going to be paid back. It's like maxing out a credit card, going back to the bank and saying, well, give me a higher limit, but I'm not going to change my spending habits. And so we, we need some type of reform. I can tell you, as a debt ceiling, you know, when we had President Obama in the White House, we didn't do clean debt ceiling increases then. So why should we do a clean debt ceiling now that we have a Republican in the White House? Uh, and I understand that that's at odds with Secretary Mnuchin. Uh, I don't think there will be a clean debt ceiling. It will either have uh, some type of attachment amendments that are Republican and pass with predominantly Republican votes, if not all Republican votes, or it will have Democrat amendments and be passed with predominantly Democrat votes. A clean debt ceiling, uh, to my knowledge, has not been negotiated between Republicans and Democrats, although I do agree with the secretary it's going to get raised. And uh, you know, the Freedom Caucus has a menu of ideas and options that we've put out that uh, would allow for a Republican-only debt ceiling increase, uh, both in the House and the Senate, if, if need be. Uh, but, you know, really right now, I'm, I'm not supportive of a clean debt ceiling, no. You raise an interesting question, though, around Republican support. My, uh, I wonder, just, I'm just curious, why the need to tie fiscal reforms to the debt ceiling when Republicans control everything? You've got the House, you've got the Senate, you have the White House. I understand it as a point of leverage back when the Democrats controlled the White House or Democrats would control the Senate. You, if, you, if you're kind of positioning against that, you say, well, we're not going to have another moment. But you control the agenda. You can put things on the floor whenever you want. Why not say we're going to do the debt ceiling because we're not going to mess around with the nation's bills. We're also going to do this package of fiscal reforms. So we're going to actually tackle these issues and we're going to do it in the light of in a normal process that doesn't put any, a gun to anyone's head around debt? Well, I mean, listen, I'm not one that likes to use the debt. Uh, and I'm probably a little bit more, more moderate on that in terms of, of playing around with, uh, you know, our full faith and credit of, of the United States government. I don't think that that's a vehicle. I'm, I'm probably in the minority as it comes to uh, conservatives on that position uh, in that, uh, you know, I, I just... I believe, like you, that you need to get the spending in order, but we just had a previous conversation about not doing appropriations bills and doing a continuing resolution, which means that the current spending levels are going to continue. And to say that Republicans are in control uh, ignores one key fact, that it takes 60 votes to overcome a cloture vote in the Senate. So that gives Chuck Schumer and eight Democrats a lot of power. Uh, And so unless you change that to a 51 vote threshold or use a different vehicle where you can, quote, have Republicans only in control, uh, you're not going to make a lot of progress when it comes to curtailing uh, the out of control spending. And so uh, it's easy to say, well, Republicans control both the House, the Senate and the White House. Uh, Indeed, uh, that is true for two of those. 
the Senate, uh, because of their uh, arcane uh, Senate rules. And, uh, you know, I don't know that I would necessarily agree with that. So I, before we let you go, I wanted to ask you about uh, the reaction from fellow, from many of your uh, Republican colleagues to the pardon of Joe Arpaio. We heard from the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, a quite critical uh, a statement on that, uh, um, saying that, that, that he disagrees with the decision of the president, suggesting it sends the wrong message uh, to the country. Heard similar criticism, of course, from the two Republican senators from Arizona. Uh, what, what what is your what is your take on the on the Arpaio well, pardon? Well, I I, I, I I disagree with with the speaker's position on this. I I support the president in that position, and so let let me ask you this: You got one judge who holds a law enforcement sheriff in criminal contempt. One federal judge uh, who, who does that, and so you can say, oh well, you know he. He needs to go there. Well, it's fully within the presidential powers to pardon. But here's the bigger problem and, and what people are ignoring. And so hopefully your listeners can listen to this. What about the 19,000 plus illegal immigrants that were convicted of of not misdemeanors, as we're talking about here, but they were convicted of, of sexual crimes, rape, attempted murder, those kind of and we let them go. Over 19,000 of them. And, you know, you can go back and look at congressional hearings. Uh, it was 19,000 in, in 2016. It was actually 32,000 uh, the previous year. And yet we somehow, where is, is the outrage over that? And, and I'm here to tell you that uh, not only do I support the president in this, the vast majority of my constituents believe we have a problem we need to do, deal with it and that the sheriff was trying to deal with it in the best way we can. And we had one federal judge who, uh, you know, put their their stamp of what was right and wrong on it. And so I support the president in it. I don't know that the speaker should have weighed in on that particular position. So we would be at odds there. Well, I, I guess the question is, this is the very first pardon issued by the president. You have uh, the, the very first pardon issues goes to uh, – to somebody um, uh, c- convicted of contempt of court for violating, uh, you know, for, for 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 refusing to stop racial profiling, law somebody, officer, yes. yeah, law enforcement, and and and, and somebody uh, who also, you know, not related to <clears throat> to the legal issue well, here, but the, but but also, the, you know, it, w- it was the way that you're characterizing it. It was the detention of illegal immigrants that he was actually was holding and so you know if you look at at the actual case and so so when when you get there it's really easy to put a label on it but let's understand what it is it was actually trying to deal with an illegal immigration issue in the state of arizona and so as we do that i mean i i can tell you that uh, it is critically important that we we take a a solid stand on the rule of law. I don't disagree with that. And yet, at the same time, we somehow pull out this one pardon when we. Well, it's the only pardon. It's the only. It's the only pardon that President Trump has issued. Well, that's true. I mean, this is this is his first pardon of of all. So, if we want to do a compare and contrast, why don't we go ahead and pull out all the pardons and clemency that was done in the last time under President Obama, and we'll put their record up against the sheriff's record and say, which one's more appropriate? Should we let federal drug dealers loose 
and and pardon them. We did in the last months of the previous administration. I didn't agree with that. I didn't criticize it. It is an executive order and an executive privilege that doesn't reside in Congress. But certainly, if we're going to do compare and contrast, let's let me come on again and we'll we'll compare and contrast and and not take this one part and try to extrapolate it in the meaning something that it does. Well, let's extrapolate something else. You, Paul Ryan, you said that he should not have weighed in on this. Are you concerned that Paul Ryan seems to be increasingly at odds with this White House? We've seen it both in terms of that statement coming from Ryan, criticizing the president. We've also seen the, pres- the president quite critical of Ryan uh, through, a, through a series of tweets, Ryan and, and Mitch McConnell. Are you concerned that the Republican leadership now in the Congress is increasingly at odds substantively and uh, in terms of rhetoric with, uh, with the president of the United States? Well, I can tell you what most of my constituents uh, are more concerned about, whether it's the Speaker of the House or Mitch McConnell, the leader in the Senate. They're more concerned that we actually get something done. And so the frustration probably doesn't really resonate as much with a statement coming from Speaker Ryan or Mitch McConnell on this thing or that thing. What they're tired of is they're tired of talk and no action. I've heard it the entire month of August as I've been back in the district. Uh, they they want Washington, D.C. to be different, and that means to accomplish what the president ran on in my district. In some districts, obviously, it's exactly the opposite of that. But in my district, they want something accomplished. And so, uh, if anything, uh, I've heard more and more and more that they want people to get behind President Trump's agenda and actually get tax reform done, get repeal and replacement done, get job growth going again, and all the bickering back and forth, you know, while it, it, it takes on a life of its own, is probably uh, not the focus of the people that I serve. And I would venture to guess it's probably not the focus of most members of Congress. They don't they don't hear about that as much as they hear about getting something done in Washington, D.C. Congressman Mark Meadows, we'll take you up on the offer to be back at some point to, to litigate this and many other issues. Really appreciate it. You're, you're, you're a, a thoughtful guy, and uh, we appreciate you coming on the, on the program to, to share your perspective at a very busy time uh, in, in politics. Thank you, Congressman. Well, the same to both of you. Thank you so much. It was good to be with you. All right. Thank you. And that will do it for this week's edition of Powerhouse Politics. Please take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts because it helps other people discover the show. You can find me and John on Twitter. John Carl is at John Carl. I am over at Rick Klein. You can find us at Apple Podcasts. Tune in. And of course, as always, at abcnews.com. This show was produced by Megan Hughes, Avery Miller, and David Rind. I'm Rick Klein for Jonathan Carl. Thanks for listening.